the Lord be with you. There were three mandatory pilgrimage festivals that were part of the cycle of life in ancient Judaism. And it is said that the autumn festival, festival of Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, was the most popular of the three. And from my perspective, it's not hard to see why. What a time to be alive in Jerusalem. What fun it would have been to be a child or a child at heart in those colorful days. In the spring, Passover celebrated the exodus and escape from Egypt. In the summertime, Pentecost commemorated the gift of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. But in the fall, the festival of booths, maybe you've heard it called the Feast of Tabernacles, well, this was a time when people called to mind 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The long season after their escape from Egypt. It was a complicated set of rituals and practices that they brought together as a community, a time of embodied meditation and worship. Liturgical imagination and remembrance of those long days. Years, in fact. Years shaped by hunger and thirst and exposure in the desert. The time of bitter complaining and weariness in the wild, thin spaces of God's mercy. Theologically, this was also the time to give thanks for God's provision. Who else had been feeding them all those years? Who else had been bringing them water to drink? The sustainer of Israel's children in the wilderness. And so for seven days, the people of the city would live in little huts or booths or temporary shelters, and each family would build in their yards or on their rooftops. What a fun and elaborate way to embody the memory of those days as people without a home. And for my money, who doesn't like building forts? Any fort will do, a a pillow fort, or a blanket fort, or a ping-pong table fort, or a couch cushion fort, tree houses, snow forts, all the forts. I am here for all the forts. If you thought setting up a Christmas tree was a good time, how fun would it be to build a little shelter in the backyard with your family, family each year, bunking out for all those days with friends and neighbors? Aunts and uncles helping with decorations and meals and lending tools and supplies. Of course, there were no Christmas trees to decorate, but there was plenty of foliage in the celebration. During the festival, faithful pilgrims would carry with them a bouquet of foliage and fruit called the Four Species, based on instructions prescribed quite clearly in Leviticus 23. In their right hand, they would hold a branch of myrtle, a branch of date palm, and a branch of willow. Ryan has printed off terrific handouts if you want to see what those little branches of the four species look like. This bundle of branches was packed with meaning. 
the bouquet of branches representing the unity of all God's people. It was a way to find yourself in that community by finding yourself in the branches. Here's the little lesson. It was said that myrtle has a good smell, but no taste, symbolizing those who possess good deeds but do not study Torah, the law and the scriptures. The date palm has taste but no smell, symbolizing those who study Torah but do not possess good deeds. The willow has neither taste nor smell, symbolizing those who lack both Torah and good deeds. I don't know about you, but I feel scolded and included in that object lesson, which I think might have been the point. In their left hand, though, the people would hold a very special fruit called an etrog, more commonly known as a citron. It was one of the ancient Chinese citrus fruits and the great-great-grandparent of lemons and limes and oranges. It was a big, gnarly lemon with really thick and bumpy skin. The rabbis would say of the citron, it has both good taste and good smell, symbolizing those who have both Torah and good deeds. All of you citron people, we are really glad you're here. The gathering of these greens and this fragrant citrus fruit was a lesson a person could touch and see and smell and even taste, taking up the space in their days so that their senses and their imaginations might speak to their hearts and their souls. Each morning during the festival, people would rise and and greet the sun with prayers and rituals, clutching their branches and that fragrant citrus fruit. And they would pray to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west, shaking their branches. And they would say, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments. What a rich tradition. And then every day during the festival, worshipers would make their way to the temple, carrying their branches and those beautiful fruits for rituals and songs and prayers. And at the temple, people would take a lap around the altar, shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Thanks to the efforts of my parents, I was that little lad the one who got perfect attendance at Sunday school. And I remember every one of the, okay, I remember most, I remember a lot of the lessons. And believe me when I say no one ever showed me a picture of Jesus holding a big gnarly lemon or a bunch of branches. Is that weird? Yeah, that's kind of weird. It's strange, right? The details of this festival uh, that are the focal point of this whole story, it's a good reminder, I think, that as we read the Gospels, that the context and the texture and the flavor of Jesus' life as an observant Jewish man in Judea, it's critical to our understanding of these Gospel stories. These story elements aren't just fun filler because Jeremy is such a nerd. They are 
the whole context. In previous chapters, Jesus had been touring the landscape around Galilee, and he'd been avoiding the big city because Jerusalem had become too dangerous a place for him. But here in John 7, Jesus is back in Jerusalem for the Festival of Booths. Our text today from the Narrative Lectionary drops us right into the most important day of the festival, the grand climactic day when the leaders and the priests would carry the four species for seven laps around the altar with much ceremony. And the priests would make their way down to the spring that fed the pool of Siloam to draw water in a golden flask, carrying it through the city gates with reverence, blowing horns and singing. And then at last, the golden flask was carried to the altar, up a ramp, and finally poured out on the altar as a libation by the high priest, a drink offering to God, a sign of thanksgiving for God's provision, water, the primal ingredient for life. How seriously did these people take this ceremony? Well, in Jesus' day, everyone was well aware of that time, about 80 to 100 years before, when the high priest poured the water out on the ground as a sort of liturgical protest. And that crowd of people all pelted him with those citrons, those big, gnarly lemon fruit of theirs. They screamed at him in their rage. And then a bloody civil war ensued. This festival was serious business. All of this ceremonial importance and theological significance and tradition and history bring us finally to the part where Jesus took a stand at the temple. And he shouted, if anyone is thirsty, they need to come to me and drink. And even better yet, people who trust in me will become a fountain of life from deep within their being. Now, of course, John's gospel, with a sort of retrospect comment, makes sure that we know that Jesus is talking about the spirit of creation and empowering and filling a new people. But in that moment, this was an amazing (laughs) revelation for a bunch of these folks. For some of them, they say, surely this is the prophet, as the ceremonial water is still glistening on the altar. This Jesus from Galilee is declaring himself a, a source of God's water of life. The same creator who nourished and sustained his people in the wilderness, the sustainer of nations, speaking now to us through this Galilean. This is really great. The promising of a spring of life, of water. Could this be the one we've been asking for in all these prayers for all these years? For some of the people, this is a cause of celebration. And yet we we really shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' bold declaration would be met with suspicion and doubt from so many. It's It's a hard thing. This is contentious and dangerous, What a declaration to make. 
in such a place, on such a day, in such devout company. Arguments ensue. People get out their proof texts. Some ask why he hasn't already been arrested. What an outrage. This one, man, he says too much. This is crazy. Who does he think he is? The officials ask, why didn't you grab him already? And the simple response is a profound one. Nobody has ever spoken this way before. More arguments. No doubt people are furious. Are some of them getting ready to throw those citrons at him? Are some of them getting ready to throw stones? And just then, a familiar face pops up in the crowd. A Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, for his time and his place. Our old friend Nicodemus, the man who already had his mind blown by Jesus some time ago during a late night visit. We had his own private conversations about water and spirit and a whole lot of other difficult ideas. It's probably too early to say that Nicodemus would have had everything figured out, but something is at work in him. With new eyes, he considers this young rabbi. And here, Nicodemus is the calm and thoughtful voice in the angry crowd. Somehow, Jesus walks away from all the commotion that he has caused. Maybe because of Nicodemus. We're not told. But Jesus heads back out into the countryside. But he leaves with us the promise that the author of creation, the spirit of life in Christ is alive in our midst. No less promising, no less astonishing a promise. Still every bit a mystery and a wonder and a hard thing in 2022. How do such petty and confused and angry and disappointed little lives like ours include such vastness. We walk a a troubled earth. In many ways, we feel like we're still in the wilderness, parched and thirsty for the stuff of life. Our lives are shaped by such an arduous landscape and we find shelter whenever we can, companions whenever we can, and believe me, we celebrate when we can. Taking time to be amazed by the promise that our lives might be living fountains of spirit life? How can this be? What a strange and beautiful image we find here in John's gospel. The primal stuff of life given for us, but also shared with all of creation in our lives. Poured out on the altar of the earth, living gifts to the world we are. 
This strange mystery we will never fully comprehend. Because, after all, the Spirit is a pure gift. Never captured or contained, wild and alive on the vista of human history. But also quiet and patient in the secret places of our hearts. And so, friends, we we live each day in the Spirit, whether we know it or not. Sometimes alive and aware and grateful. Sometimes half asleep to the mercies of God. Sometimes calm and, and thoughtful. Often not so much. But we are always assured of God's love for us. Whenever possible, we, whenever we see, we find time to voice our gratitude. Practicing ways of making space in our days so that our senses and our imagination might speak to our hearts and our souls. Friends, this is the distillation of John's whole gospel. This is the source of all of our hope. Thanks be to God.